I try to make my life simple. And particularly this time during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time over the weekends, just lying on my tummy on the floor, looking into my eight months old eyes. And when you do that, you know, my priorities become very clear. It's family, business, and then everything else gets put in a hobbies category. But for me, the value of watches, even though I'm wearing sweatpants and athleisure for weeks on end, really holds up. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin, and this is Hodinkee Radio. We're back. It's a new season. This is episode 101, and we have so much fun stuff to bring you over the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, And we're going to start with a bang. This week's guest is Miles Fisher. And if that name sounds familiar, it could be from any number of things. Uh, Miles is an actor. Uh, He was in a number of films. He had a uh, cameo on Mad Men. Uh, He was a YouTube star. He's a coffee entrepreneur. He's a golf enthusiast. And most recently, he's become a podcast host, uh, launching his show Coffee with the Greats, uh, co-hosted with his dad uh, on Blamo Media. Uh, It's a fantastic show. You should check it out. We talk a little bit about that in the episode. Uh, But one of the things you're going to love most about Miles is that he's a diehard watch guy. And I mean, seriously diehard. This guy is in deep. Uh, We get into how he jumped headfirst into this hobby just a few months ago, how his personal collection's developing, and what he still hopes to discover along his horological journey. The second half of the episode is devoted almost entirely to us chatting about watches. But before we get there, Miles and I also talk about our mutual love of podcasts, how he ended up in the coffee business, and where he finds inspiration on a daily basis. So with that in mind... Let's do this. This week's episode is presented by Accutron. Relaunched this year, the new generation of Accutron watches are the world's first to be powered by electrostatic energy, continuing the brand's tradition of innovative timekeeping. Stay tuned later in the show to learn more or visit AccutronWatch.com. As I was as I was saying, I have stuck in my head. It's great. I, it's, it's good that this is royalty free, or uh, I'd, I'd be sending you a bill right now. It's uh, <laughs> l- l- lucky we're in that boat, but uh, yeah, it's always it's always good to have another podcaster on the show. Somebody who like we set this up and the microphones are on, and like you know what to do. It makes makes my life much much easier. It is incredible. Uh, now just how how easy it is to uh to do this uh but i will say i tried to get a new mic and from amazon and specific stores a target and then i found an electronic shop out of north dakota that had one of these little mics in stock i mean the 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 world is is now buying these microphones for all the right reasons so it is high high demand for the equipment i guess that's a good problem for us all to have more more shows to listen to more people involved it's i mean Podcasting is still, I guess, relatively young, although it feels pretty, pretty mature at this point. But I mean, years and years ago, it was it was like you told somebody you listen to podcasts and people kind of looked at you funny. It was like being the kid who like goes to the comic shop every Wednesday or whatever. (laughs) All the comic people are going to yell at me about like getting new comic day wrong or something. But uh, I feel like podcasts have like, I I don't know. I know you're a big podcast junkie, but like, do you were you listening in the days when like 
it was weird to be listening to podcasts? Uh, I was, I was, I was. I mean, if I, if I really think back on podcasts, I remember around 2007 or 2008, some big schools announced that they were going to record all the lectures and give, you know, old fashioned iPods to the students for free. I think Duke announced it or something. And wow. I thought, oh man, you never have to show up to the lecture and you can just listen to it. And boy, these, these young bucks have it easy. Um, and then of course it, you know, podcast on an actual where you had to plug in and download episodes and it was just too early until it was all, you know, synced through the cloud. And so I think 10 years ago, I became a big junkie of, uh, NPR's Planet Money and, you know, the yeah. Slate Cultural Gab Fest. And so one was kind oh, of yeah. financial reporting made accessible. And then the other was a three-person conversation. And, you know, I think only now we're at this new paradigm of podcast where all of these documentaries and the specific, and then just long form interviews, you know, there's just so much noise right now, but there's uh, there's not as much listening and the internet just cuts context and nuance right out. And so yeah. uh, I, I, I love these long form kind of interviews. I think they're the highest nutrition count of most media. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I, I mean, we talked before getting on mic uh, that you're, you're a one and a half speed listener. <laughs> uh, I'm typically a one and a quarter speed listener. Uh, one is too slow. One and a half for some of the stuff I listen to is a little too fast for me. But uh, yeah, there's this really it's, it's kind of amazing that there's so much there's so much stuff out there and there's so much stuff going on and finding time to consume it all and stay up on it all is is impossible at this point. I mean, like I look at like my queue of like amazing golden age TV shows to watch that I, I you know, missed a year ago or whatever. And like, I'll never get to the bottom of it. And and there's something kind of freeing about that of knowing mm -hmm. that like with podcasting, there are so many good shows out there. I could listen all day, every day and not even scratch the surface. Uh, and so it's freeing for me. Like, I don't feel like I have to listen to everything, but I also know that if I have 30 minutes and I'm walking to the grocery store or if I'm on my commute back when we commuted places, right. um, like I could make good use of that time. And it's, it's really liberating and also enriching in that way. Well, it, and it's, it's very much kind of the story of, uh, me becoming obsessed with watches, uh, because of this extraordinary content, all during, uh, you know, the, the pandemic and shelter in place. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, philosophically, if you just pull back on time, we say it a lot. But the truth is, it, it's really the only finite resource in life. There's only 24 hours in a day. And one of the great advantages of, of podcasts um, is that it unlocks a 25th and a 26th hour. Like you said, you're doing it while you're doing something else. And, yeah. and then it's also incredibly intimate. I, I really think we're pre-wired. I mean, for a hundred thousand years, our species has communicated uh, storytelling and just through audio. And, yeah. you know, visually, it, it's just been a rapid acceleration over the last hundred years, which, you know, is a blip of an eye. But going back to 1.5 speed and 1.2 speed, I find if it's a podcast conversation, 1.5 speed mm -hmm. is right. But if it's kind of books on tape where someone's reading off a script, you got to slow it down a little bit because the cadence is a little yeah. quicker. Agreed. Yeah. I, I think the intimacy thing is is really fascinating to me. Like, you know, as, as people in the media world, like you and I both know 
some of the people I'm sure who who record the shows we listen to. And like, I know a lot of the podcast hosts whose shows I listen to our friend Jeremy, for example, sure. you know, is is uh, was a good friend of mine long before he started Blamo. And there's something sort of strange, actually, about like listening to his voice, not having a conversation with him. Yeah. Uh, but on the <laughs> flip side, there are shows I've been listening to forever. I mean, like 99% Invisible, Roman Mars's show, um, is a show like, I think it was episode like 12 or 13 when I started listening to that show. They're in the hundreds now. They have a book coming out. I've never met Roman. I, I think we have some mutual friends, but like we are not connected in any way. And yet, like he is a he and his voice are like a very powerful force in my life, and it feels like I know them. And I think in in this world where there's so much media to consume, and so much of it is is honestly anonymous online, whether it's through Instagram or whatever, like you, there's just so much, and there's so much distance between you and what's happening. Having that those moments where like you can you can shrink that distance to as small as you can possibly get it mm. is is a really powerful thing. I agree with all that, and I would just add that uh, I don't think we're aware how subconsciously we make micro judgments visually within a split second. Mm. For example, you know you 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 watch any sort of interview on TV, and you just immediately we might, I might write off someone, uh, I, I, don't, I don't like the way they're clicking on their teeth or I, what, what they're wearing, uh, I've kind of written this person off, which is so unfair and you don't even realize you're doing it. Whereas with audio, immediately the, you're on that person's team. You're just listening to yeah. them. It, it, it makes you, um, I think it wipes away a, a, a layer of BS, to be honest. And then the yeah. other great thing about a lot of, the formats of podcasts is the content is evergreen. You know, uh, mm. Hodinkee interviews that you did three years ago are just as relevant to me today as they were when they first launched. And so that's exciting to kind of have this, this backlog. In fact, I, 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 re, I went down a deep uh, watch podcast rabbit hole through, <laughs> <laughs> through I, I wasn't able to sleep one night, you know, early in the whole with COVID. And I think now we're you know five odd months in but at the beginning it was just it was so crazy and time was warped and kind of shrunk and every day was just one long run-on sentence and i yeah. couldn't sleep and you know our our home is very near uh, and our office where a lot of the uh, riots were in la and it was it, it was just an overwhelming time and we have two young children under three years old and i put everything into this business for years with my partner i couldn't sleep and someone gave me a book by uh, Nick Falks on kind of the, the history of time. And I started reading it late one night and I actually slept like a baby. And it, it mm. was just, it was wonderful. And I thought I woke up the next day and thought, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And so I started down that and I, I looked, I typed in Nick Falks into podcasts. And, you know, there was, there was an episode that he did, I think, with Brian Duffy, the CEO of Watches of Switzerland. And he just <laughs> talked for an hour and a half. It was this magnificent fireside chat just on the history of Omega. And I, 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 I couldn't devour it quick enough. And then the next one was, you know, John James Dowling talking about the history of Rolex. And they were talking about these brands in terms of, imagine you're a 25-year-old young entrepreneur. You're not a watchmaker, but you're a merchant and you have to market these ideas. And I just thought, this is the most fascinating thing. And um, yeah. You know, it's a very, it's a very, very deep well. Of course, 
uh, led by first amongst equals, uh, the the Hodinkee Empire. <laughs> very very kind of you to say. Uh, I'm I'm glad your your like foothold into this was Nick. Uh, Nick is is one hell of a storyteller. He's got kind of a perfect voice for doing something like this. Uh, and he Nick was actually one of my first bosses in in the journalism world back when I was an intern in in college. Is but, that right? Uh, Nick, Nick is a force of nature. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that that was your, your sort of toehold into to getting into this. Um, Nick, Nick is, is, is truly uh, one of the greats in the field. Um, and I've always had a fascination with him from a, from a young age. We, uh, my, my father subscribed to the Financial Times. And so when I was in high school reading that, you know, oh, the, yeah. the pink newspaper on the weekend sections. And then when I was in college, uh, my, my job, I basically earned beer money working at this old, men's haberdashery called the Andover shop in, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts no way. And, and got really, Oh yeah. So, so have kind of followed That's sartorially. Wild. And so his books from on cigars and even on Beretta guns. And, you know, of course he's Mr. Sartorially inclined and just has this extraordinary vocabulary, but I had a secret crush, not crush, but awe of Nick Fowkes because he went to the same college that my father did at Oxford. It was Hartford college. Uh -huh. And, I, I just thought, um, you know, here's a man with immaculate taste who uh, can can articulate the nuances. And so, yeah, hearing him for an hour and a half on a podcast uh, is, like I said, it's it's good, high nutrition content for watch nerds. <laughs> That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, I, I want to make sure we'll, we'll get back to watches, but I want to make sure we, we talk a little bit about your new show uh, right right off the top. Um, which is how we got connected. Um, so your your new show is Coffee with the Greats, and it's on the Blamo Podcast Network. Uh, Blamo, Blamo is, with an exclamation mark. So Blamo, Blamo with an exclamation <laughs> mark. Uh, and Blamo is run by our friend Jeremy Kirkland, who's a former Hodinkee Radio guest, longtime friend. Um, and when the new show came out, he and I were chatting and and wanted to get you on as as soon as I found out you were interested in watches. So. Um, yeah, I mean, can you? I could, I could sum it up, but I'd rather hear your sort of elevator pitch. How how would you describe Coffee with the Greats to people who who aren't listening yet? Well, the the elevator pitch is it is a multi generational conversation. It's my father and I talking to kind of living legends, um, not just in in the business. Kind of corporate sweet world. Uh, today's episode, for example, was with Roger Staubach, who you know took the Cowboys to the Super Bowl five times, but frankly is a, is more impressive uh, in what he did afterwards in building his real estate business and also just a very decent, extraordinary guy. Um, and and so th really, this all started as a personal project. Um, if I'm to be totally honest, I. In my early 30s, um, my wife and I got married. My parents separated after over 40 years of marriage. And I'm the only one in my family who's in, uh, in Los Angeles. And so I wanted to do a, just a project with each of my parents. And with my dad, my dad's kind of got this incredible story that I've always been uh, a little in awe of, to be honest. And basically, his father was abandoned on a doorstep in Australia in 1904, grew up homeless, actually grew up escaping out of orphanages. And um, my father was born in California, but grew up in Mexico City. 
you know, he, he was conversational in Spanish before English and grew up very, very humbly. And he went to a tough military prep school and then, you know, got a scholarship to Harvard and then went to Oxford and then Stanford business and, and then served the government. And it, it really was kind of the traditional American dream story from homeless mm. to Harvard in a single generation. And, um, uh, as he kind of built his career, he had these extraordinary contacts. And I just thought, you know, dad, it would be really fun to actually sit down and have a conversation with some of these people, um, just to kind of preserve wisdom for posterity. And it was as simple as that. It's the tone was the same conversation as you and I are having now, but with these, some of these larger than life figures. And, um, we, we sat on it for a while and kind of around the time of, of quarantine, um, I thought, Hey, I think we really have something here. And of course, you know, the, the world has now gone to zoom. And so asking for say the, the head of JP Morgan's time where we would meet him at the office, it created such bottlenecks as far as scheduling. But now that Mm. we can do it via zoom, I thought, Hey, we, we may really have something here. And so um, I reached out to Jeremy Kirkland, whom I've listened to for a hundred hours, whom I've never met face to face. And I feel like he's a, he's a very really? good friend. Yeah. To this day. And it's wild. We FaceTimed a lot. I mean, you know, I think he and, and my wife, Lucy are probably on a separate, you know, text thread making fun of me sometimes, <laughs> but he's, he's just a great guy. And of course I, you get a sense of someone when you hear them talk for a long, long time. And I, sent him a couple of these recordings and, and he agreed there was something here. And so we're, we're kind of onboarding this in, in real time. And, um, and it's been, it's, it's, it's really been incredibly satisfying. Yeah. I mean, you, you said that you talk to larger than life characters, but in a really casual way. And that, that was the thing that from episode one struck me immediately. Uh, and the first episode is, is with Jamie Dimon, uh, who runs JP Morgan, um, and you know, I used, I used to work at Bloomberg. Uh, I was a reporter there for, for a couple years. Right. Um, and so, you know, I've seen probably hundreds of interview clips with, with Jamie Dimon and I've, I've never seen him in the way that you hear him in the first five minutes of this interview. Like it's, it's apparent immediately that this is, is a different side of him than the side you usually get. But then like that sort of like alpha dominant Jamie Dimon thing like comes through sure. periodically sure. and you're like, you're reminded that like, oh, oh shit, this is Jamie Dimon. Like this isn't just some guy who Miles and his dad are friends with. Like this is, this is a big, big serious dude. But the the way that you balance those two sides of people is, is really interesting and, and really compelling to me. I appreciate that. And, you know, it starts one at one. One of the podcasts I used to listen to for years was um, kind of a, a long form interview that the Hollywood Reporter did. And uh, the very first question that they always asked was, you know, to begin, uh, where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? And I kind of ask a variation of that just to start. And if you get someone, assuming they had a fairly good relationship growing up, and even if they didn't, when you sincerely start, not by asking someone about themselves, but tell me about your parents. It, it, the BS immediately disappears and uh, a sincerity. And then usually once they, you know, talk about their parents for a little bit, I will then skip them and say, tell, tell me a little bit about, about your kids. And, and again, the, the sincerity level is up, but also I have no problem 
you know, poking fun at my dad and kind of calling BS on him. And so that tone, I think, is appreciated by the guest. Uh, and, and the whole idea is, look, we don't want to talk about politics. We don't want to talk about anything topical. Tell us your life story. And on that journey, what wisdom is important for your grandchildren to know? And I just think that's a fun, a fun format because not on television, not in print media, uh, can I think of any um, multi-generational interview. And so uh, here's, here's hoping we can continue with, uh, with guests like that. <laughs> I, 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 think you'll, I think you'll be able to do it mostly because from the tone of the interviews, they, they sound like rigorous might be a weird word to use but they're they're rigorous but safe mm -hmm. and i think mm -hmm. that's a really important thing i mean like the ceo of mastercard doesn't want to go sit in a room with somebody who might ask him something that's going to then like put him or his company or his people in a in a compromised state but if they if they know they can engage in like a real substantive conversation so it's worth their time but also they know that they're going to be treated with respect and they know they're in a, a place where like they can kind of be free to be open. I think most people like having those kinds of conversations, whether you're the CEO of a giant company or just like some guy who goes to the office every day or, you know, the woman who works down the hall or whatever. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter. Like you can be any kind of person. And I think that that type of sincerity really tracks with people and is attractive to people. And I also think that these guests of this caliber want to talk about these substantive personal issues. You know, one, one of the questions I love to ask is, um, you know, um, tell me, tell me what your tomorrow looked like when you were 35 years old. Who, who were you? And, and what did, what did your week look like? And you can just immediately see in their eyes, just going back. What was the landscape of their business professionally? Had they met their partner or not at that time? Were they, and you know, what I found is that the difference between really good and truly exceptional is it's, it's not unlike fine watches. It's the parts that no one sees. It's, it's the hundredth turn of the screw that makes, you know, a piece, not just last 20 years, but last 200 years. And um, those are very personal stories. And so, you know, to get in and say, we can take as long as you want. It's just a conversation not, hey, this is three minutes, get, you know, get your soundbite in, and hopefully this will help stock prices. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. With the kind of people you're interviewing is is often what they're asked to do, right? Like their PR departments call and say, hey, can you, this might juice things a little bit, like we need you to roll out on this set. But, you know, I listened the other day to the the one with Randall Stevenson, and he's somebody who I was, I was aware of, but I didn't know a lot about. Um, I don't know if you know this, I'm also from Texas. Um, I'm from Austin. Oh, uh, great! But uh, was aware of Randall Stevenson. I mean, he's obviously like kind of kind of legendary in that part of the country. He had these little insights that really really stuck with me, and I think are interesting also because I want I want to talk to you about your business and and the business uh, you're you're currently sitting in right now as we <laughs> as we record this uh, Bixby Roasting. Um, he talks about the idea of risk and the fact that you can't. You can't be truly successful until you failed at something, because until you've experienced failure, you don't have a good barometer for risk. And and I think that dovetails nicely with something else he talked about, which is that successful people 
love to talk about the idea of balance and striking balance, but that like mm-hmm. ultimately successful people tend not to be balanced people. Like you have to be able to kind of go all in on something. So I, I wonder, you know, as as an entrepreneur, how you think about those things and and maybe some of the other lessons you've learned from from your guests as well. It's a it's a great uh, question and theme. You know, for 15 years of my life, I was a professional actor. It would take 100 auditions for me to land one role. And I've landed lots and lots of roles. And even those roles that I've landed, we've shot it. And kind of like your story early with the first episodes of Hodinky Radio, you know, none of them will ever see the light of day. And by one definition, that's failure after failure after failure after failure after failure. But that the experience has been an extraordinary education in, in, in so many regards. You can read as many books as you want about success and about balance. Um, I think everybody can eventually realize that talk is cheap. Everybody has good ideas. A lot of people, most people are very, very smart. Coming up with a good idea is one thing, but the real value is just in showing up every single day. And if you can, if you can make it work for yourself where you can just continue to show up, then you put yourself in a position to one day win. Um, I mean, in so many quote unquote success stories, it's, it's never one, it's never the thing you think it's going to be. It, it just, it just kind of rises to the surface, but you have to, you just have to be, be present. All of our guests have kind of said that in one regard to another. And, you know, that famous Steve Jobs commencement address, I think um, that he gave it, he gave it Stanford where he says to, in an essence, you know, it's only looking in the rearview mirror that we can link A to B to C. In real time, we had no idea how these things would line up. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I always just try to put myself in a, in a position to um, continue to show up every day. And f- for me, uh, every venture that I've had that has had traction has been with a teammate um, in, in one regard for another. That's what's so hard about, I think, acting uh, and being an entertainer is it's, you know, usually you're acting Han Solo. And it's a, a long, lonely road sometimes. I assume it's acting that brought you out to L.A.? Uh, it was. It was. It was. So um, I, I graduated college in 2006. And um, music has been a really big part of my life. When I was really young, um, when I was in fourth grade, I sang in our school choir. Uh, and it just so happened to be this incredible program where every summer we would kind of have residency at the great cathedrals in Europe. So when I was 10 years old, I was performing at Westminster Abbey and Notre Dame and Mont Saint-Michel. And it, 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 it was really a kind of a professional singing experience. And so in college, <laughs> I lost a bet to my freshman year roommate. And my end of the losing bet was I That's had- That's how all t- good stories start. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It would have been nice to have won, have won that bet. Um, but uh, alas, I did not. And my punishment, as it were, was to uh, embarrassingly try out for the fanciest acapella group. <laughs> and okay. so I thought, no problem. That would be one day. And, and uh, I, I did it. And they kept on calling me back. Now, this is 
this is in 2003. I'm 19 years old. Uh, shout out to the Harvard Crocodillos, Harvard University's oldest acapella singing group, founded in 1946 at the Historic Hasty Pudding Club. And, you know, black tie are you contractually, jazz and Are you contractually obligated to say that? <laughs> no, but I, I've done over 600 shows when I was in college. Wow. And so it kind of comes out. Well, so here was the thing. Wow. This was, this was before the show Glee was created on TV. This was back when acapella was A, super nerdy, didn't have the cool quotient. And B, um, I kept on going to the callbacks because I found out every summer they went on a 25 country, six continent world tour. This is 12 guys. And um, it was the trip of a lifetime. And so I was like, well, that, that would be really, really cool. And I was lucky enough to make the group. And by the time I had graduated, um, you know, I'd been to nearly 50 countries around the world singing, singing all over. And, and we, it was, it was intense because <laughs> sounds ridiculous saying this. We rehearsed every single day, for two <laughs> hours, no off season um, and no substitutes, you know, on a sports team, if you get injured, somebody else takes your spot. This is just 12 guys, 12 nerdy guys, but very talented musical um, savants really. And it was a lot of performing. And so when I had graduated, I thought about, you know, uh, I had some options with record labels and all of that, but the state of the industry at that time, as it is today, it's all touring. And that's where your money was made. And I had toured enough to know what I was giving up. And so I wanted to start making videos and, um, you know, for, for one, of, one of my classmates freshman year was Mark Zuckerberg. And so uh, I was just very fluent in this new phenomenon of social media. Um, and back in 2007, Google had just acquired YouTube. Brands were taking 30 second TV spots and just slapping it on the internet, thinking, oh, this is this, what this means now. And I said, no, it's a different type of engagement. And so I started signing, I basically created a little digital ad agency it's called Milestone Media. <laughs> and I started making music videos because music videos were kind of a big genre early on in YouTube. Um, and they were these very cinematic music videos that I, you know, would basically sell to brands like Physio or Range Rover or K-Swiss. And they started getting millions of views back when that was big time. And I was short staffed. So I was the guy who was acting in them, but also like performing, but also <laughs> trying to sign clients and work in the back. I didn't know what I was doing, big picture. I was young and in my 20s, but I was energetic. And as these videos began to pop off, I started getting cast in shows. And I thought, okay, this is fun. And it wasn't until I got cast in this movie, Final Destination, which is a, is a huge global franchise. I mean, I, I think the movie, the, the film that I was in, which was shot in 3D and all that, was the number one movie in Russia for three months, <laughs> the entire country of Russia wow. and, and Brazil. Um, Interesting. But major, I know. So a lot of my Instagram followers, you know, are, are speaking Portuguese and <laughs> Russian and they're very into, I mean, I think I died like four times in that movie. These Final Destination movies are nuts, but it yeah. was good fun. And then I had a part in Mad Men and, you know, I, I got to do some scenes with DiCaprio, in directed by Clint Eastwood. And I thought, this is cool. This is really cool. I mean, that is cool. That's, that is <laughs> unquestionably awesome. Yeah. However, um, I started getting cast in pilots uh, for TV shows and I got cast as the lead of seven pilots and not a single one of them got picked up. And the way it works for television is when you get cast as the lead of a pilot, 
they basically contract you out for three months. So you're not allowed to do anything else because once they shoot the pilot and then they cut it and then they test it and you know, the suits figure out if they're going to air it or not, they can't risk you doing some other project. So they kind of buy you out for four months and that happened seven years in a row and took me off the market. And I was never, it just didn't, it didn't happen. And so it was very bittersweet for me because you know, my, my enthusiasm really started to fatigue and uh, it just didn't fill me up as much as creating these projects all on my own. And so um, that's where I really started to think about, okay, what is, what is a, a, a passion of mine? And there are, for me, my, my passions are, for some reason, they're all C's. They're coffee, <laughs> clocks and clothes, and then clubs, which golf clubs, I suppose. I, I love golf. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the original idea was um, the brands of the last hundred years were built on shelves. And I just think the brands of tomorrow all have to be built in the phone, in the palm screen. And yeah. so if I can, if I have this talent of making captivating content for the palm screen, um, you know, let's, let's try to have a, a, a coffee brand that sells direct to consumer. And the value proposition of coffee uh, that I identified was freshness. You know, words like best or finest or um, any sort of superlative, it's, it's all subjective. It's all taste. But if we could basically print on demand coffee where we roast and ship the day you order, then inherently it'll be fresher than anything you ever buy off of a shelf. And if we can price it the same as say your local Albertsons or Kroger's, then we might have a real business here. And that's kind of where we started. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, it's funny. I, I think in some ways people might think like, Oh, you're, you're a musician, you're an actor, and now you're running a coffee company. But I think the fact that you do it direct with your consumers is, is actually really telling, right? Like, you're creating a product and then you have a direct relationship with the people consuming that product. And it's a product that in theory is meant to be enjoyed daily and meant to like bring some joy and value to people's lives. It, so in, in some ways it feels kind of of a kind to me. I was listening to uh, Mark Cuban talk the other day on a podcast and he was talking about someone had pressed him on, you know, what, what is the core product you're selling in the NBA as a, as a Mavericks owner? And he said, it's, it's all an emotional experience. He said, it's, it's all the entertainment value. When you go to a basketball game, think of you know, the favorite basketball you've gone to game. You don't remember the score. Maybe you remember someone else, but you remember who you were with, the, the fun that you had with that person and the, the, the moment. And as he said that, I just thought, boy, that sure is coffee. Uh, coffee, if you really wanna be cynical about it, Stephen, coffee is brown caffeine water but it's so much more. It's a, it's, a, it's a ritual. It's a clarity at the beginning of the day. It's a conversation with a loved one. It's a very personal behavior and it just brings people joy. And so, you know, it just so happened <laughs> for, for years now, we have been building up slowly this infrastructure of direct to your doorstep. And we do all fulfillment here on site. Um, and we are true to our value proposition of the freshest coffee you've ever had. We always knew our core product was recession proof. You know, AI is not gonna ruin the demand for coffee. But we had no idea that we were pandemic proof. And you know, coffee, coffee delivered right to your home 
is a stronger value proposition today than it has ever been. And the home is also now the home office. More people in the house are drinking coffee. I love coffee shops. I think everybody loves co coffee shops have been a, a civic pillar since antiquity. And, but not only LA and not only New York, but everywhere in America, there's great coffee shops. Um, but the, the brands on the grocery store shelf, which is 95% of coffee drinking America, those are virtually the same brand since World War II. And, you know, it's not as sexy, but nobody's really focusing on that. And so that's what, that's what we've tried to do with Bixby. And, you know, just step, step by step, we've got a long ways to go. But um, Coffee with the Greats, for example, of being sincere, you know, I never met, I haven't mentioned Bixby in our podcast. It is a conversation over coffee. But I'm trying to think, okay, as a consumer, what is a way that I can justify frankly, subscribing to our business. Um, the core business model for us is the lifetime value. If you subscribe to our coffee, you'll never run out. And we want to make that easy. But five months into our relationship, it's on me to provide you content to justify you sticking with us. So maybe it's a great conversation while you drink your coffee on a commute, etc. And now a word from this week's sponsor. 60 years after the original Accutron watches changed the course of horological history, the brand has been reborn, continuing its mission of introducing innovative timekeepers with unique style. The latest generation of Accutron watches are the first watches in the world to be powered by electrostatic energy, utilizing totally new movements built from the ground up and shown off through a series of special open-work dials. These watches fall broadly into two collections. The first is the Spaceview 2020, taking its name from the original open dial Accutron that inspired a generation of watch lovers to think differently about what a fine timepiece could be. Signature green accents and the visible movement components call back to that original Spaceview while also emphasizing the groundbreaking new caliber and its high accuracy capabilities. The second collection is the Accutron DNA, which reinterprets the classic Accutron for the new millennium. The unique case design has a bit of a sci-fi vibe, but the skeletonized movement and open dial make it clear that this is still an Accutron through and through. There are four versions available to start, each with a unique combination of case metal and dial color. You can go casual and classic with steel and green, or sleek and minimal with black and blue. For more, visit AccutronWatch.com and follow at AccutronWatch on Instagram. Alright, let's get back to the show. It's interesting that you're thinking about even the coffee business, which is like a hard product consumer good business. It's a grocery business in, in a lot of ways as also being a content business. It's, it's a lifestyle. The, the product is anything to anybody. Um, so we need the product to be fresh and high quality first and foremost. But I, I also get such a trip out of, you know, coffee is about as global a commodity as it gets. I mean, coffee and oil, and it has been uh, harvested truly around the world for, for millennia. And so, you know, all, all of these young next generation companies who are disrupting and I don't say that cynically at all, but how do we innovate on coffee? And I think you can overcomplicate things. I think instead it's get, get out of the way and just make it easy for the, for the consumer. I have, um, I ha are you a, do you have pets? Uh, we, we had a dog. Sadly, uh, we lost him a couple months ago, but big, big dog person. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I've, I've got a oh, huge heart you. for, for dogs and, and all animals, but yeah, same, you know, we have got a Labrador and he's my buddy. And the worst thing that can happen is 
it's Sunday evening, you know, you're winding down and you go into the cupboard to get his dog food and you're out and the poor fella's got to eat. And now you're thinking, gosh, can I go to the grocery store? Is he going to have to go hungry? Well, I probably shouldn't say this, but if you're a regular daily coffee drinker, like I am, coffee's my dog food. If I, I need, I yeah. need coffee. And so, <laughs> you know, it's Tuesday morning. I, I'm ready to go. I've gotten out of the shower. I open up my cupboard. If I'm out of coffee, my day just went from groggy to God awful. I haven't even left the house yet. <laughs> and so, <Right>. yeah. <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's just solve that problem first. Uh, with, and, and, yeah. and try to, our whole ethos has been specialty coffee without the specialty attitude. Again, I have nothing against, in fact, I, frankly, I geek out about, I don't know, all the technicality and even the lifestyle around leather aprons and, you know, hats that look good on bicyclists in the 1930s and mustache wax and all the barista <laughs> culture. And that's truly, I dig it, but I just need a good cup of coffee reliably every morning at the house to get things started. Yeah. I think there's a connection between that sort of attitude and the attitude that I have. And it seems like you have about about watches and that I think a lot of our listeners have, which is like, yes, you can enjoy geeking out about the technical details. But at the end of the day, it's it's a part of someone's lifestyle. And it's a part of what makes you like have a smile on your face throughout the day. And I think that's something we try to do and have tried to do as long as I've been involved with Hodinkee is, you know, Yes, like like you said, there's there's a certain baseline. Like, yes, we need to be technically accurate. We need to be thorough. We need to provide quality information, quality images. But like more than that is we, we need to make you, you know, say, okay, I took 20 minutes out of my day to read a story about a mechanical timekeeping instrument. And like, I feel good about that time investment. Like I'm, it's, it's exciting. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel connected to a community. And I, I think, you know, whatever people are passionate about today, I think like that's really what sort of like being a hobbyist or being an enthusiast looks like in 2020. I think you're, you're spot on. And I think that's the future um, of, of, I think your industry and my industry it's, it is fostering a community in, in a very sincere way. I mean, so I, I have spent, let me just say, as a consumer, and again, I'm not trying to butter you up, the, the content that you have offered, that Houdinki has offered, it's gotten me through the pandemic. I mean, tr truly has, has just calmed my mind. It's kind of the only reprieve of, of the day. Uh, yes, the very polished high-end print. By the way, thanks for the reissue on number one. It was the only episode missing. <laughs> You're most welcome. <laughs> but, you know, even, even the current lo-fi, my watch stories that, you know, uh, are kind of user generated is, is so cool. I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, you know, a lot of the, the super high-end big watch uh, brands didn't even have e-commerce going into the pandemic. And so if... I mean, forgive me if this is a hot take, but I, I think it's interesting because I live in LA and you know, this, the, over the last several months, this whole time I'm, I'm, I'm deep in this rabbit hole of watch content. Again, Houdinki did it first, Houdinki does it best, but there's a lot of people out there. And I am right down the street from Rodeo Drive, which is where all of these brands have their North American flagship boutique. I've been into all of them and they all feel behind. Not in a, I don't wanna say soulless way, um, but there is a, a lack of oxygen there, you know, 
it, it, I feel like if somebody in 2020 wants to check out a watch, my bet is they, they first look up a long form proper review on Hodinkee. They check out a Tim Masso video review. You know, they look it up on Chrono 24 before further stumbling down the rabbit hole. And it just occurs to me that, you know, most online content worth consuming about watches is produced by this quote unquote secondary market, which doesn't just mean used watches. It's, it's, you know, you guys have built this kingdom by increasing production value. And we just know that abundance of relevant, high quality educational content pays dividends. So, you know, I think the brands and the authorized dealers think they're safe because quote, the secondary market is different. But the truth is consumers don't care who gives them what they want as long as someone gives it to them. And if you can build a community alongside that, boy, that's awfully powerful. Humans are loyal to convenience. Yeah, no, I think that's 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 a really good point. I, I think, you know, for for years, not to get too into the weeds here, but for, for years and years, those watch boutiques were people's only resource for community, for knowledge, right? Like that was the hub. Um and I think I think you're right that we sort of were very fortunate to be able to to leapfrog that old system and now it's everybody's playing catch up and trying to find parity and, and trying to figure it out. And I think the pandemic ultimately, while it's it's going to impact sales, and you know, I'm, I'm in no way trying to make light of the the human and economic toll here, but I think a swift kick in the pants, whether it was from the pandemic or something else, uh, was a good thing for the watch industry. I think it's it's an inherently conservative industry. It's an industry that tremendously val- places tremendous value on the past, um, and this really motivated everybody to look forward. And I think. You know, five years from now, I think the industry is going to be in a much better spot. I think there's going to be a lot more people interested in watches, um, you know, which selfishly I think is, is a great thing. Um, but I think I think you're right. I think people people are loyal to convenience, and it's important that the people they're getting their information and their products from catch up and give them that convenience instead of expecting them to adapt to the to the businesses. I also think you know it's been it's been tested, and for me the value of watches in a world where <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing sweatpants and athleisure for weeks on end really holds up. You know, I worry a lot about fashion retail and just the consumer demand, but for watches, even though I'm somewhat confined, the joy it brings just on my wrist in a personal way. I'm looking at this, um, by the way, I don't, I don't think we've done a wrist check. What, what, what are you rocking today, Steven? I am wearing uh, a 1016. I'm wearing a vintage Explorer. Beauty. It's a little hard to see on my uh, Zoom call there for you, but uh, how about you? Uh, I'm I'm rocking a, a Grand Seiko uh, SPGY003. Um, this, this beautiful. That is a very cool watch. It it is something special. And actually, I recently I put new shoes on it with this strap. Um, I not to get political, but you know, what's happening in Hong Kong right now uh, is rather extraordinary. Yeah. And when this first happened, I thought, I, I want to check in on the the armory and see, you know, and Mark Cho, by the way, who's been making videos uh, every day, which I think is yeah. so cool. Yeah. But I wanted to support them. And, and they had this beautiful strap that they did with a uh, Drake's uh, and made out yeah. of old Drake's ties. Yeah. It's it's quite, quite handsome. I, I, I just... I love this one. It's it's the first watch that really really seduced me. Mm. So what what is your personal watch taste like? It's a great question. Well, let me let me kind of back up a little bit and just tell you kind of the watches in my life prior to Yeah, please. 
the, the pandemic. Um, when I was both with music and also a, a lot of my life has been shaped by travel. I've been lucky to travel around the world a lot. <clears throat> when I was five years old, my family lived in Japan for a little over a year. And so, oh, cool. you know, I remember Casio's uh, ab- abundant, but I think when you're five years old, plus, you know, Casio G-Shocks in general, you know, everything is just huge. It just doesn't fit on you. It was really, really big. And so the first watch I really had that I loved was just a classic Timex Iron Man. I think, uh, I think Indiglo was brought to market in 92, if I'm correct, which, so I, th- I was just obsessed with the Indigo and actually, uh, here's, here's a story. I thought it was the coolest watch in the world because few people would remember now, but, uh, my father was, uh, ran for Senate in 1994, uh, from Texas. And, um, I was very young and I, I don't remember it much, but I do remember that, um, Bill Clinton came down, flew down to an event, uh, to, you know, support my dad. And so I got to have a photo with him and he put his hands on, on my, on my shoulder and he was rocking a Timex, an Ironman. And I just thought, That's whoa, awesome. the president's wearing the same watch I have. This is super cool. And just, you know, it just, it never left my wrist. And then um, when I was in high school, I went on this very intense semester abroad program. Um, we lived in, we moved to Washington, D.C. starting freshman year of high school. And I had a hard time with that transition. Um, and so I, I went to this thing called the Island School, which was a semester on a, a small island in the Bahamas. It's, it's not as glamorous as it sounds run by a former Navy SEAL who um, okay. made everybody, we, we, it, was, it was all focused around marine biology. So this so was very, very intense. It was kind of 30 students from around the country and uh, every day started at 5.30 in the morning, you had to run three miles. And all of the food you made yourself and you prepared yourself. It's kind of like an outward bound type thing. But um, the science was really heavy. And so we, uh, we did scuba diving every single day and like night dives and stuff like that. It was super intense. And so the rule was you had to come with a dive watch that was uh, rated over, you know, 10 ATM. And so um, that was the first real watch that I depended on. And, you know, it was the, it was the Luminox Navy SEAL watch. (laughs) This is back in 1999. And it was, um, I really counted on that thing. And, uh, and I, I wore that for a long time. And then, um, you know, in, in college, we went on this world tour and it was black tie. And so I thought, Hey, you know, this is before everybody had a cell phone. And when you're coordinating with 12 uh, collegiate guys to meet at this point in the city at this time, everybody needed to watch. And I thought, Hey, let's really be smart about this. So, you know, I went to a Nordstrom's and I bought, I think just a, a Tissot, you know, blue, the equivalent of like today's like gentlemen, and then like a Hamilton, a Hamilton that looked like a Calatrava. So kind of for the price of one, I got two, you know, little uh, dress watch and then a, a sports watch. And I wore those for, um, for a long time. And then I, I, I basically, thanks to my wedding, my, my wife gave me the most extraordinary watch the day we were married. Um, about an hour before we all went to the, you know, the, the church, somebody just knocked on the door and one of my groomsmen said, hey, this is from, uh, from Lucy. And it was a beautiful vintage uh, Cartier tank with a personal engraving on the back and it matched the engraving on my ring. And um, so I just treasured that watch, but we had a very large wedding and uh, people were very, very nice to, you know, give to the registry. And 
you know, you and I are the same age. At a certain point, you just, you don't need stuff. You don't need physical stuff. Right. Yeah. And things like China and all, I mean, it's just, it's a different world now. And so I remember we were, it's a beautiful store in Beverly Hills. It's named Geary's. And yep. you know, I was like, sweetheart, I don't think we really need any of this. And the person who was helping us was like, oh, well, you should just change it in for credit. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> and <laughs> they said, yeah, you don't, just because somebody gave you this, I, sh I really shouldn't be saying this out loud on a podcast because these people were so gracious to give us, <laughs> you know, these, these very delicate items. But we had a little bit left over and um, there's one watch that I had always appreciated which was just the the Explorer, the Rolex Explorer. It was it was discreet. It was the right size. Of course, the story of it, everything. And uh, they had one. And I asked uh, Lucy, "Are you okay with that?" And she said, "Yeah, but it's still you know a wedding gift for me." And so those two, I mean the the two one four two seven zero. I've 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 worn that every single day except for special occasions. I wear the tank until the pandemic, and. Um, that's where, again, it, it just helped quiet my mind. And of all of the, can, can I just give a quick shout out just as, as a public thanks to some of the people around the world who helped come yeah, on my journey? Yeah, of course. Of course, um, we'd love that. Okay, so Houdinki, the greatest. Whoever the guy is that does the reads on watchfinder.co.uk, you're a legend. Adrian from Bark and Jack in Australia. ID guy from South Africa. Holy smokes. ID guy once went through an hour and a half detour on old French flintlock engravings from the 1700s and brought it back to like oh, Breguet, like wild. the low styles. Incredible. Um, Jenny L in Germany, what's up? You got an amazing attitude. Mark Cho, Tim Masso is just a whole nother legend. Obviously Chris Joan, Christian Theo and Harris, um, so many more. I mean, hell, even Archie Luxury. Like there's so much going on. And then in podcasts uh, and then books. I mean, Stephen, your, your book is one of the first books I bought. Um, which, can I ask you about that? Like, can you share, tell me a little bit about the process of, of writing a book because I'm surprised that there aren't more of them. And um, yeah, you, you provided a really great, I mean, I pull that book off the shelf once a week. Like, t tell me a little that bit about that. Very kind of you to say. Uh, yeah, funnily enough, uh, the story is actually kind of a mirror of your story, which is that when I started at Hodinkee, uh, I knew very little about watches. Uh, I, I mostly wrote about men's fashion, you know, classic style kind of stuff. Uh, and I asked Ben, I said, yo, I, I need to get up to speed here. What do I read? And he said, oh, you got to go buy Gene Stone's book, The Watch. And I said, okay, perfect. So I went out, I bought the book. I read it cover to cover over a weekend, opened it probably two, three times a week minimum, you know, mm. uh, for years and years. And then through a mutual friend, uh, got connected to Gene. I'd met him once or twice over the years. And he said, you know, the, the publisher wants us to do a new edition. The book's still selling, but it feels kind of out of date. Um, I need a partner on the project. You want to do it with me? And I said, of, of course. Like, this, this book is how I learned about watches. Right. The chance to go in and, like, redo it. And in some ways, like... It felt like kind of like paying it forward uh, to, cool. to other people. Cool. Um, and it was it was amazing. I mean, Gene is is an incredible author. He's written literally dozens of books about a variety of subjects. Um, to learn how to do a project like this from someone like him um, was was a tremendous uh, learning opportunity. Um, the chance to kind of like check all of my own knowledge like yeah. I, I had to fact check everything so it's things that i assumed i knew off the top of my head i had to go back and, and verify 
um, trying to like make judgment calls about which brands get in, which brands don't. Like it, it really forced me to question a lot of what I thought I knew. Um, so selfishly, I found it really rewarding. And then, yeah, I mean, I obviously do this because I I love it. Like this is the thing I care deeply about, and to be able to to do that in a forum where like somebody can take the book off their shelf or give it as a gift to someone else is is a really special thing. It's it's really a privilege. It it is it is it is paying it forward, and it's just nice to hold something to know that hey, this will be around yeah. in, in 30, 40 years. Agreed, agreed, and like you know. Anyone who's written a book and tells you anything other than that they love being able to give it to people is completely lying to you. Uh, you know, there there is something so nice about like you know when when the book came out, I bought like cases of them uh, from my publisher, um, and was just giving them to everyone I knew. And right. like you know, we there's something so like deeply satisfying about being able to hand something to somebody and be like. I made this thing, you mm -hmm. know, which like whether it's a book or in your case, like, you know, shipping coffee to people, mm -hmm. like being able to say like, here's a physical thing that is going to exist in your life. And like, I made this or me and my team made this or yeah. a group of people I work with made this uh, is a really powerful thing. And I say that as somebody who spends most of my time making things on the Internet that people read on their phones or hear through their headphones. But like there's something about a physical object that is still special and kind of inherent to to what makes watches special. So all that being said, uh, you uh, you noodling on an idea for a second book? Uh, thinking about it, a little little busy right now, but uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely thinking about it. Um, I mean, we didn't, I think when I agreed to take that project on, I don't think we had launched the Hodinkee magazine yet, uh, which sufficiently eats up my time and scratches sure. that itch to make something uh, physical, but... Yeah, I mean, the 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 book we produced at Hodinkee uh, and the magazine that we produce twice a year is is very much in the same vein. Like it's we we want to make things that last. We want to make things that you can hand to a friend. We you know, the magazine is distributed in all kinds of places that are not full of just watch people sure. like you can get it in an Amex lounge or in a hotel room when you know, those things open back up. But um, can I, you know, can they, I suggest or just throw out an idea of something if you guys made? Please I would buy. do. Okay. Here's what I'm looking for. Give me some flashcards. Either, so, so mm. that's been one of my secrets my whole life. Um, not just academically when I was, you know, young as a student, but even recently, you know, I had to track, you guys used to sell and they went out. You can still buy them. Um, from uh, watchprint.com, but the Trivial Pursuit uh, edition of Fun oh, yeah. Watchmaking. Yeah, yeah. So I've got my cards in the other room, but, you know, I just keep, I keep them in my backpack and I'll just flip through just to, you know, stay good on, on trivia. Um, but if it were like a deck of playing cards and on each card was, you know, tri like just information about the house or the brand or history, boy, Love it. I'd buy a lot of those. Love it. That is a good idea. I will be passing that along to the Hodinkee shop team. Uh, we'll, we'll put that on their plate, but I, I love that. That's a great idea. Um, what, what in terms of watches, what is, you mentioned that you had basically the Explorer and the tank yes. until the pandemic hit. And you obviously have this Grand Seiko. What, what was it that drove you to Grand Seiko? I mean, that is not like anyone who's wearing a Grand Seiko is someone who's like into it. Mm -hmm. um, however mm -hmm. vague that term is. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what what kind of brought you to Grand Seiko? <clears throat> so I there's two there's two parts. One, I'll be very honest with you. I had an incoming email totally out of the blue that was from a cable company in Australia. <laughs> I think the only cable company in all of Australia. I had made uh, a video about a year ago, me as Tom Cruise announcing I'm running for president. And uh, I can tell you that story. It was really fun, but the video went viral. It got millions of views and, uh, and it was great. And I was just gonna leave it at that. And I got this uh, note from Foxtel in Australia. And they just said, hey, we think this is really cool we've licensed Tom Cruise movies as our summer of Tom Cruise event. Um, can we use this as a commercial? And I was like, yeah, sure. But you're going to have to pay me. And uh, yeah. And so we worked that out. And uh, out of nowhere, I got a check. Just totally out of nowhere. Just a one time only. Hey, how's it going? And um, I had also just celebrated a birthday and we hit a big milestone. And I just thought, gosh, I, <clears throat> I'd like to get a watch. And like I said, I, when I was very young, I spent over a year in Japan. And it's always occupied um, a, a special place in my imagination, in my heart, uh, just Japan. Have you, have you spent a bit of time in, in Japan? I know you have an office there. Yeah, I, uh, I went for the first time last year, and I went twice in the span of about six weeks uh, and had to cancel a trip about two weeks before quarantine started. Oh, no. Um, which was, was a bummer, but... Yes, I am. I am. I think. I think I'm in the same boat as you there. Well, I would imagine m most people listening know all about the nuance of Grand Seiko. But as I discovered, um, as I as I discovered, I knew all about Seiko. But what Grand Seiko's real ethos was, um, particularly with Spring Drive, and then you know, even just this this one that I have, it's a, a limited. I think there's only seven seven hundred of them ever made. Um, I just wanted something that was absolutely pure and clean. And I was just, I was just seduced by it, by this watch and was actually able to track one down uh, new old stock uh, out of Canada. And um, you know, it just, it just made my heart <laughs> sing to be honest. I know that sounds yeah. kind of ridiculous, but it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And it also allows me, I, I'm a big believer in the power of storytelling. And so even just explaining this watch to someone else, just of the, the, you know, the liquid sweep of the second hands and what spring drive means. And um, it's, it's great. And so uh, I also, I believe in, you know, that we used to say in menswear, the most expensive suit you ever buy is the one you never wear. So yep. I, I, anything that I bought that is nice, I've always done a price per use calculation and yeah, you know, I still wear sports coats that I had 15 years ago. Well, those have already paid themselves off. And so I find it the same, same with watches. And so my Explorer was my beater. I don't say that sacrilegiously. I know it's a really nice one, but that was just my everyday watch. And my tank was kind of emotional. I'll never get another watch on my wedding. But with Grand Seiko, it was something completely unique um, that also was a different sensibility out of Swiss made. And so I tried to kind of assemble a little modest collection based off of my needs. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there was one piece that was missing, which to me was a, you know, my, I try to make my life simple. And particularly this time during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time 
over the weekends, just lying on my tummy on the floor, looking into my eight months old eyes. And when you do that, you know, my priorities become very clear. It's family, business, and then everything else gets put in a hobbies category. And in hobbies, you know, it, it's watches and, and golf. And so I, I wanted a, a golf watch and I did a lot of research. Did you know that there is a Cartier Pasha made specifically for golf? And it is outrageous. I did. This watch is insane. We'll I'll, we'll find a photo of this watch and uh, Gray, we'll, we'll link this up in the show notes. This watch is bananas. It's bananas. I think Genta designed it or, or like kind of co-signed off of I it. I think so. And it yeah, has- I think you're right. I mean, the idea that anybody would actually wear this playing golf is, is, is absurd, but you could keep, if you were playing with four people in uh, foursomes or four ball, it would keep score individually on, on four different dials. It's totally nuts. The yeah. truth is if you want a real you know, golf watch, you get a, a Garmin or even now perhaps right, right. a new Tag Heuer that may be pretty overpriced. <clears throat> but um, <laughs> what I wanted was a watch that could just keep my score uh, relevant to par. So I wanted, it had to be a bi-rotational bezel. And I really like the idea of an internal rotational oh. bezel. So I went down this, this long track for the Memovox. I love the Memovox. I love everything that it was about. Of course, you know, I'm a big fan of JLC. And I thought, okay, well, let's really get into branding now. You know, JLC, obviously you ask anybody, and they'll say the Reverso and the Watchmaker of Watchmakers. But as far as their other lines in the catalog, few people know the, the Polaris is a great watch, but they've branded it as for the man in movement. And so I thought, okay, all right, if I can wear this while playing golf and I can just rotate the bezel, um, that could really work. So that is my sports watch. And That's super cool. I have never heard of somebody using an internal rotating bezel to track their golf score. That's pretty awesome. It's, it's great. It's, it really, really works. Um, it's a little, it's, it's a little big to be honest, the, the watch, but I'm going to throw it on the, the rubber strap. And, you know, again, yeah. back, back to my, I used to think that the best way to wear clothes was to, you know, pick it out with care and then wear it as though you had just thrown it, picked it up off the back of a chair with nonchalance. Yeah. And so it's nice to have a nice watch, but then, you know, just wear it and forget it. And if somebody, you know, not to insist upon it is, right. is a nice way to yeah. do it. And, and so, um, I, I love, I love the, the JLC. Yeah. I'm trying to think I'm not a huge car guy. I appreciate cars, but obviously the, the overlapping Venn diagram between watch and, and car guys is strong. Yeah. I, the corner I want to pick is, um, the watch and golf guys. So I know your boy climber, myself, of... Eric wind, maybe Eric wind's son. Yeah. You know, Eric wind's son for sure. Eric wind's son is going to smoke everybody. Uh, at some point, but he already, he already is. And I've got, by the way, I've yeah. got a great working title for the concept. Uh, it's called red par. Uh, <laughs> it's just the red, there we red, go. red par club. And it's just guys who want to play Perfect. golf, but also who are got, watch nerds. We'll see who, who knows maybe, <laughs> maybe when we're done with this pandemic. Do, do you have any watches that are kind of like the next thing on your radar? Anything that you're, you're waiting to come in or that you're, you're kind of thinking about pulling the trigger on? Yes. Uh, yes, yes, I do. And I'm so excited. <laughs> As any good watch guy does. Yeah. I'm so excited about it. So I'll back into this by saying I have, um, I have a few dream guests for my podcast. If, if, if we ever are able to get them, um, would be extraordinary. But my, my ultimate, uh, dream, 
I went to high school at a school called St. Albans in Washington, DC, which uh, is a very small little private school right at the National Cathedral. Um, but it's a wonderful school and we have um, some distinguished alumni, many in the, in the world of politics for obvious reasons, uh, and foreign diplomats, children. But the coolest alum we ever had, when you walk into the main hall, um, the first thing you see is an American flag that was flown on the moon. And Michael Collins, who um, was with Buzz Aldrin and, and um, I, I guess was, was, is, is kind of the forgotten man with Neil Armstrong, um, he went to St. Albans and he's, he's an alum. And I just, I think that's the coolest thing in the world. And I think the, the moon watch is just so extraordinary. And um, I don't know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't have a, a chronometer and I'm just not a huge format guy. And I've, I've been looking at various speedies the whole time. And so, you know, with this new 321 and the whole history of Lamania and bringing it back together and the size of 39.7 and all of it. So, um, I, you know, but how do you get a deposit? I mean, they're not even in North America and, do you, do you have any sort of opinion on this watch, the new Speedmaster 321 coming soon? I, I think it's incredible. I think it's an incredible watch. I think it's, it's Omega's making the watch that all the enthusiasts have wanted for years and years and years. And I think it's something that Omega's done a really amazing job at in general and not to like log roll for them too much here, but like so few watch brands actually like really pay attention to the collector space. Yeah. They're paying attention to what customers are buying at large and at, at scale. Um, but to make this watch, which like in the grand scheme of things, like they can probably make a lot more money selling basic James Bond style Seamasters all day. They're way easier to make. Uh, I'm sure the margin is higher. They can crank them out at much larger volumes. But like to do a project like this and to re-engineer this movement mm. purely for the nerds mm. is, is I think a really great message uh, for Omega to send to the to the community. So I like the watch itself. The watch is incredible. I'd love to own one. But I think the message that the watch sends is maybe even even more powerful. Totally agree. And I really think it's cool how, you know, it'll it'll stay in the catalog, but they've kind of, again, says a guy who's not a major car guy, done the Mercedes AMG treatment to it, that it's one person yeah. who assembles the watch uh, in its entirety. Uh, to me, I think that's really cool. I mean, the movement talk about the ultimate sapphire sandwich holy smokes that 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 movement just makes my my heart skip a beat um and with the size i also i think that bracelet looks pretty swish <laughs> i do too yeah i do too so I, i've so, only seen the watch very briefly uh but i'm hope, hoping to get some more time with one soon it, yeah i mean you know uh, peep peep uh, robert jean from fratello's instagram and he uh, he yeah. certainly dangles his a lot but so now my question is if that, so I guess that watch is 10 ATM. The only thing in the back of my head is just the waterproofing. And from a guy who actually mm -hmm. scuba dived, scuba dove, past tense of scuba dived? What is it? Uh, Was a scuba how diver. How many majors is it gonna <laughs> take to figure this out? I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll ask my editor. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, nev I'm never doing more than, than holding my breath for 30 seconds in a, in a swimming pool. But I would reckon that anything without screw down crowns, just stay clear of the water, right? I mean, even so, can I just ask you, yeah. like with, with my Polaris, that's rated to 10 ATMs, but there's nothing screwed down. And I just think, really, is this, is this safe? It depends who you ask. I mean, like, it's probably safe. Um, 
also like what's the ROI is sure. what I always ask myself. It's like, do I really need to jump in a pool with something without a screw down crown? Probably not. I can just wear a different watch. Like right. I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position where I have, I have enough options. Um, yeah. I mean with the Speedmaster, I, I'd be more worried about accidentally hitting one of the pushers on something, mm. uh, which is where you'd really have a problem. Cause you'd essentially be like forcing water into the case. Mm. Um, it's still probably not likely, but like, it's a case where I'd say, like, unless you really need to wear it in the pool, unless that's, like, really going to make you happy, uh, it's probably not worth it. Yeah. I mean, it'd be covered under warranty in theory, but then you have months without your watch while it's getting fixed, and, like, I just steer clear. Yeah, personally. I mean, going going to the moon's cool enough. I don't need to go to the bottom of the swing pool as well. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I will say, man, Omega, I mean, I think, too, the new James Bond 300 Seamaster just and that Milanese titanium bracelet Omega's yeah. Omega's doing things right I'm also fascinated too just with the if you're a golf person you know they just slam dunked yeah. this last weekend with Colin Morikawa they did and um you know going back into the history of of just watches today of course we think brands you know teaming with influencers and all that but the genuine influencers back in the day being the woman who swam the English Channel and the mountain right. explorers yeah, yeah. and the scuba divers who really were authentic and who actually used these things. Right. I think it's I think it's so cool. And uh, boy, Omega seems to be doing doing something right, even though, um, you know, in their physical retail. Again, I live right down the street of Rodeo Drive, and the Omega experience is pretty underwhelming. I'm afraid to say. Mm. I don't know that I've been to their. Rodeo boutique. I've been to most of them. I'm not well, they sure don't. They don't have one, but... it. It's you know. It's in a watch time. Ah, or it's that's in, why. You know, it's oh, kind okay. of the the duty free at the nice international airport style oh, type okay. deal. That's why. Right. That explains it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I I agree with you. I mean, I think overall Omega is doing really really great stuff, and I think you know we're living in an age where I mean to to circle back to something we talked about really early on here is like. I think Omega and a handful of other brands are starting to realize that like they need to offer their customers more than just a great product. Like a great product is is a great thing, but that product needs to be emotionally good. It can't just be like objectively good. Mm. Uh, and it needs to be sold and marketed in a way that's relatable. And there needs to be, you know, opportunities for meetups and opportunities to, uh, you know, Omega does a lot of stuff where like they'll have astronauts at their events. And like, oh, yeah. oh, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm extremely spoiled in that, like, I get to do this and interview people for a living. But, like, if you're not a person in the media, like, a chance to go have a cocktail and talk to an astronaut for five minutes is is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That's incredible. And I think they're they're really smart about how they do those things and about how they, they deploy those sort of, like, how they deploy their cachet in that way. So if, if I were to interview one of the CEOs of one of the, the, you know, great companies just on this podcast, if I ever had a chance, um, personally, who would you be most interested to hear the coffee of the grades? So just to jog, just to jog your memory, cause I've done a little homework. Um, Catherine Renier at JLC, who strikes me as a very yeah. impressive woman, Jean-Frédéric Dufour at Rolex, Terry Stern at Patek, uh, Louis Furla at Vacheron, Mark Hayek at Briguette, Christopher Granger Hare, IWC, uh, Francois Henry at AP, or do you just go, you big time it and just get, you know, Johan Rupert 
just to talk about the whole Richemont spread. <laughs> I mean, Rupert would be a really interesting interview. I've I have never interviewed him. Uh, Joe, who I work with, has has I think interviewed him on a few occasions. Um, that could be interesting. Um, Jean Claude Beaver, who's not technically uh, you know running the a Godfather, company right now, right, like right. he's incredible. Uh, any chance you have to talk to him is amazing. Um, talking to, to Mr. Dufour from Rolex would be incredible, but uh, they don't do executive interviews. That is that is fully off the table, I'm sure. Got it. Um, but uh, yeah, I I have to say that the there's sort of a new generation of executives who have come in in the last. You know, I've been involved in this industry in a serious way for for about eight years, eight nine years, and over the last like four or five. Um, there seem to be a new generation of CEOs in Switzerland, not the sort of uh, U.S. subsidiary CEOs, right. but the CEOs in Switzerland are becoming much more interesting. Sure. If that's if that's a fair thing to say, and I, I mean that with no no offense to anyone who's been there longer than that, but you you, you, know, you mean like, someone like Edouard at, at Moser? Yeah, someone like like Edouard, someone like uh, Chris at IWC, yeah, someone like yeah. Catherine at JLC, like. It's not, um, it's not the same people just being recycled through the system. And like, you run one Roch brand, then you run a different one, then you run another one, then maybe you go work for a chocolate company for a year, <laughs> and then you go back to a watch brand, then maybe you go work in an investment bank, then you go back to a watch brand. Like, it's not the same like cycle of the same like twenty Swiss men running the same yes. thing over and over. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a good thing for the industry. Here, I think here. it brings new people in. It brings in new ideas. Um, and so I think like in a funny way, if you had asked me maybe five years ago, like who to interview, I might've been able to give you like two or three options that would have been interesting. I think now, like probably at least like 50% of the CEOs of the big brands are like at least worth having a conversation with. They're, they're interesting. They have real ideas, uh, and they're trying to put their own stamp on things, which Mm -hmm. I think is, is really interesting. It's, Mm -hmm. it's. People are out of just pure maintenance mode and they want to like do something and leave an imprint, which I always find exciting. I've got another question for you. Yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm just just because like I, I never said, I never get to, to talk other... watches with anybody. No, so it's always I'm, a... I'm always happy to have <laughs> other other uh, other folks who want to ask questions. It's great. So from from your perspective, uh, what is the deal with Breguet? It it Breguet strikes me as having all the goods right? Since 1775, the most extraordinary, first off, an entire design language that is based off of their numerals, industry-wide, that every single piece is individually serialized, the Gilosh dials, and yet, and it must be just around the price point, like, there's just not a lot of buzz around Breguet. I want to like them. I want to like everything about them, but like, it, it doesn't, doesn't get me that psyched. Why is that? Is that the marketing department? Or? Yeah, I think. I mean, the short answer I think is that like making great watches and marketing watches are two separate jobs, mm. and if you know they're not always done in sync with one another. Um, I think Breguet has you know both the advantage and disadvantage of being a part of the Swatch Group. So you know Omega is kind of the the crown jewel there, um, and and I think sometimes you know. Breguet and some of the other like Blancpain, which makes incredible watches, like end up in some ways in in Omega's shadow in mm. a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I visited the manufacturer, I guess a little over a year ago, maybe like 
15, 16 months ago. Uh, Joe and I actually went together uh, and spent a day at Breguet. And I had never been before. Um, and it blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I have always liked the quality of the watches and liked the design of the watches. Um, I was blown away by how much is done by hand uh, in that in that factory. Yeah. Uh, to call it a factory even feels a little weird. Um, it really is like a little workshop in a tiny town in the middle of Switzerland. Uh, and it's, it's pretty special. Um, and I think... You know, this is slightly related, slightly tangential, but like vintage Breguet, uh, like mid 20th century Breguet um, is maybe one of the most sort of like uh, under underappreciated, uh, you know, marks in, in vintage watchmaking. Um, everything was made in super small quantities. Everything was really made by hand. Um, like if you put a mid century Breguet next to a mid century paddock, like the level of watchmaking is hundred percent as good it's a different style but it is it is exceptional exceptional top tier watchmaking uh and these watches are just beautiful and and cool and different um sure. and when you talk to collectors who have been like been through it all who have owned everything you'll find a lot of them have a, a really special you know either 1920s or 30s brigade or 1950s brigade tucked away somewhere um because it's it's something different and something interesting and something that they can kind of like treasure for themselves, even if it's not going to maybe like impress other people the same way that a more well-known name name might. Absolutely, they're they're really they're really sublime, and you can't you you can't you can't just buy heritage. I mean, with no, with, no, with no. design language that authentically goes back to the 1700s. I mean, that's just like oh, this is this is the cutting edge that Napoleon was using at the time. It still right. exists. Yeah, it's just exactly, coolest. exactly. Yeah, there's there's so many wild stories about things like that. When you start getting into like interior central Switzerland, you find these workshops and you start talking to the people there, and you realize that like even you know we're all so steeped in incredible watches. Like there's so many images out there, so many people posting on Instagram, but like you realize that like you're never going to know it all, and there's always going to be things yes. to discover, and there's always going to be new things you can learn about production and about sourcing and about supplying and about craft and even about the marketing side of things. And like, there's, it's one of the things that, you know, when I first tell people like, oh, when people say, oh, what do you do? And I say, oh, I work for this company. We, you know, we're a publishing and a commerce company in the world of wristwatches. And they're like, wait, there's, there's enough going on in wristwatches to keep you busy every day. And like trying to explain to people that not only is there enough to keep me busy, but like we have a team of 50 something people who have more work than we could ever possibly do in a lifetime. Sure. In this tiny little niche. Uh, it's exciting. Like it's exciting that it's a never ending uh, quest. It, it, yes. And, but I also, it's also amazing that, you know, it's always, it's always easier to show people what works rather than tell them what can work. I yeah. mean, if you had said the exact same thing of, yeah, I, I, we kind of cater to the world around digital gaming, like esports. Five years ago, people would be like, "What?" Maybe even a year ago, people would be like, "What?" There's enough like video game right. stuff that you can have an entire like lifestyle content store and original manufacturer against. And it's like, oh, oh yeah, there is, and yeah. it continues to kind of evolve. And um, again, the brands for the last hundred years were all built on shelves. They had to be. And, and now it's uh, emotional storytelling through, you know, the, the smartphone, which is installed in 
on, on, on most humans' bodies. Uh, yeah. Which is the other thing I love about, about watch because I, if I, one, th- one of my favorite features on my phone is airplane mode and just kind of turn it yep. off and turn it upside down on the table and leave it in the other room. Um, yep. So I, 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 I love just, just racking the time on, on the wrist. It's, it's a good thing. There's something liberating about it. You know, it's, it's, it's so nice to feel it ticking away on your wrist and know that like, it's not going to give you a notification. It's not going to try to get you to answer an email. It's just there to keep the time and it's doing it physically in a way that is like instantly relatable. And, and what does time mean? The whole aspect of time, particularly in this current moment where truly time is warped. Um, yeah. It, it takes you down these, these very personal pathways for me, for example, you're very good, Stephen. I, I, you know, can't believe I'm saying these things out loud on a public podcast, but <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was just thinking the other day, it's like, I don't know if we're going to have more children. And I mentioned that because we have two girls and my older brother has two girls, which means that, and again, you know, these things don't matter these days anymore, but my family name goes away. The Fisher name won't be perpetuated, uh, per- perhaps whatever my, my daughters want to do one day. But I have always, particularly with men's clothing, you know, f- for, for much of my life, if I ever had money to spend, it would go towards, um, I don't know, commissioning a, a piece of clothes. Cause I've been lucky to know some of the great tailors all over the world. And I love that, but I'd always thought in the back of my head, well, I will pass this to my son one day. I still think the Patek yeah. Philly print ads are, it's one of the most powerful. It, it worked for a guy like me. You never own it. You pass I it on totally to the next generation. I totally agree with you. And I've just, I totally I've, agree with you. Love that. But I was looking at my watch the other day and it just kind of clicked. It's, oh, I probably won't be giving this to a son. And then I thought, hmm, well, what does that say about my taste? Do I, am I freed up from ever having to get something that would be appropriate for a son or a daughter? Or does that even matter right now? And again, extremely personal thoughts triggered by an extremely personal object. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's perfect. I think that's, that's when, when we talk to people outside the watch world and I, and I say we, I mean myself, my colleagues, you know, there's always that moment of shock at the idea that somebody could be dedicating most of their lives to, to a watch. And then you start talking to people, you give them a little bit more information and, and people pretty quickly pick up on it and realize how personal it is and how much story is packed into this tiny little object. And, you know, that was that was the whole impetus behind launching this show was that I spend so much of my life talking to people about watches, not just talking about watches, but talking about stories, talking about why people love their watches, whether they're passing them down or not, whether they bought something on a trip that means something to them, like the, the deeply human things about these mechanical objects and we wanted a platform for it and luckily this this has been a pretty good place to tell those stories because i i love watches but the people who i've encountered through this world are are incredible and have so many good stories to tell and i always thought it was such a shame that we didn't have a way to share those and and luckily we've got it here and we're lucky that the folks like you are willing to talk to us honestly and openly and and share those things because at the end of the day, whether it's clothing or watches or cars or golf clubs or whatever, like it's stuff. But 
it can be so much more than that when we enjoy it with with people who matter to us and when we can find community through these things it's 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 wonderful if you're a watch person introduce me to somebody else who's into watches and we can talk we can talk about about anything it really brings people together and particularly on podcasts i mean you know I feel like I know the guys down under in Australia on the OT podcast or like the Scottish watch yeah. guys. What a bunch of nuts. I, but I yeah. crack up listening to, you know, these knuckleheads who, I, and I say that lovingly, but it's just hilarious. But, you know, I, as a Texan, you might appreciate a, an old Texan who I always held in high regard said, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth, use them in proportion. And as a yep. newbie to the watch world, I just want to pull up a table, sit at the, the, you know, the cool, I'm just a freshman. I want to sit at the seniors lunch table and just shut up and listen. That's awesome. I love that. Well, you're, you're at the table now you're talking. <laughs> People should drop, go to the site. If you're listening to this, go to the site, drop comments in, follow up questions, whatever. And we can keep the, keep the conversation rolling there. I mean, luckily we've got We've got the tools to do it. So even though we're talking, you and I are talking via Zoom, and I think it's going to be a little while before we can do, you know, meetups at bars again. Uh, luckily, the community is as active as ever, and the conversations can uh, can keep rolling. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for for all you guys do for the community. And uh, heck, here's to here's to episode 200, 300, 400. I can't I can't wait. Um, but uh, enjoy enjoy the rest of the week, buddy. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it.